0: Me. From Studio P in Sausalito, the home of the hit, it's time for Suck-a-tash. Yes, Succotash Chats, the original comedy soundcast featuring interviews from comedy Soundcast. Soundcasters, comedians, comedians, soundcasters, and other showbiz folks. And here's your host, internationally recognized comedy soundcast, soundcaster, Mark Hershon.
1: Howdy, howdy, howdy. It's your friend and neighbor, Mark Hershon, hosting Rootin' and Tootin' and Cowpoke for Epi 147 of Suckatash, the comedy soundcast roundup. yee I don't know why I said that or affected that accent. The show is no different than it has been for the almost six years that we've been doing it. This installment is actually an episode of Sucktash Chats, where we focus on an interview with a soundcaster, comedian, soundcaster comedian, and just plain old show folk. I recently wrote a review on Huffington Post of Kicking Through the Ashes, a memoir of sorts by comedian Rich Scheidner, and then a couple of weeks after that review hit, Rich was playing nearby at Mill Valley's Throckmorton Theater on a Tuesday night. After the show was over, we tried to get a bite to eat, but sidewalks roll up pretty early this side of the Golden Gate Bridge, so we went to his hotel and chatted it up a bit.
2: Here's a sample. And I woke up in a trailer outside of town. Now, Beaumont's not a big town, so I'm in a trailer park, in a trailer with the bartender, who I didn't even remember was the bartender. She had to tell me who she was. And then she's like, I got to get to the airport. She goes, well, I don't have my car. My boyfriend's got my car. My boyfriend's got my now they, I'm in her trailer. Her boyfriend's got a car. And she goes, I'll call my ex-boyfriend to come get you to take you to it was the longest ride to the airport i ever had this guy is just seething seething yeah you're you're banging her nail i ain't banging her no more what the hell i gotta drive you to the airport you know
1: there's a lot more interview with rich Scheidner coming up very shortly but we've got some other business to take care of so let's get to that right now i i just mentioned the throckmorton theater in mill valley california I am in the process of putting together a special April Fool's show there for Saturday, April 1st. So if you're nearby or going to be in the area, come on by and check it out. We'll have a bunch of comedians and funny people doing stand-up, improv, readings, music, and more. You can find out more information online at 142throckmortontheater.org. And one of our acts is our very own Will Durst, political comedian, social commentator, which is quite a coincidence because right now we have the first of a double dose of our Burst odurst. Durst.
3: Hey guys, Will Durst here with a few choice words about Donald Trump's unusual victory dance. Now, traditionally, a newly elected president hits the ground running with his hand outstretched in a gesture of camaraderie and fellowship. Not Donnie John. With all the grace of an angry anvil, he hit the ground whining, slapping the face of pretty much everybody he ran into. In a twist of Dickensian proportions, he claims the election was stolen even though he won. According to the most aerodynamically quaffed president in history, three to five million undocumented aliens illegally cast ballots against him, which is why he didn't win the popular vote. It's the only possible answer, because how could Donald Trump possibly not be associated with whatever was most popular? It's unthinkable and unprecedented. The Donald sure does love his invisible people. The invisible people who cast fraudulent ballots are obviously totally different than the invisible people who came to Washington to be the largest crowd to ever witness an inauguration, but then vanished into thin air when aerial photographs were taken. Maybe they're shy. And neither of these groups of invisible people should be confused with the thousands of invisible people who were celebrating 9-11 in New Jersey. The ones that only he saw. Maybe it's a sixth sense sort of thing. Instead of I see dead people, it's I see non-existent people. I think during the rest of the term, we can expect him to see leprechauns and ghosts and sprites and pixies and invisible enemies as well. He doesn't just have a vision for this country. He has a super x-ray vision for this country. He's like Clark Kent, only less buff and way blonder. For Suckatash, the comedy soundcast, soundcast. I'm Will Durst.
1: Thank you, Will. You can find out more about Will Durst and what he's got going on at his home site, willdurst.com. All right, we're going to jump into my chat with Rich Scheider in just a minute, but I do want to mention that I can use your help in keeping this here Succotash show going and going on a more regular basis, by the way. I could be doing this show on a weekly basis, Uh, but the main thing that that requires for me is time. Now, I can make the time to make more shows if I know that you're enjoying This show and wanting to hear it more often at the rate that podcast land or soundcast land, as we prefer to say, is growing just on the comedy side alone. We will never run out of new shows to clip and share on our Succotash Clips episodes. So there's plenty of material, especially if you consider that I'll be interviewing people from those shows during our Succotash Chats show like this one here. But we need your reviews, your stars and bars, if you will, up on iTunes. That increases our visibility and gets more folks downloading and listening to the show. If you can do that for us, I will copy your reviews over on the com blog. We'll also thank you here on the show during our cavalcade of gratitude. Now, if you'd like to help us out in a more substantial way, which I will not object to, look no further than that same com website. There you can use our Amazon banner to do your online shopping and we get a little percentage off of every sale or click on our donate button to cut out the middleman and give us some of that lovely cold hard money transfer or you can purchase some merch from our succotashery and get our logo right on your che- our logo, our logo right on your chest. Whatever you do, every little bit helps to offset our production costs, which include production and hosting fees. Hosting fees, by the way, is not my fee. I don't charge to host this show, but uh, the good folks at Libsyn charge us to uh, not that much, but enough that uh, you can help us out uh, where we put up the show every uh, every month social media blasts and uh, also keeps me in peanut butter filled pretzels. And you do not want that supply to run low. I tell you right now, okay, you can help us and we will entertain you. That's the deal. So let's get back to keeping up our end of the bargain by sharing my talk with comedian, writer, actor, and acquaintance, Rich Scheidner, right after this important message from our sponsor.
0: Hello, friend. Bill Haywatt here with some excellent news for those of you caught in wintry climes this season. Henderson's Pants is proud to introduce their new Parker Pants. For years, people have been protecting their upper bodies with warm, puffy goodness, while their lower extremities had to make do with soggy jeans and steamy, sodden, thermal underwear. Uh, no more. Now, when it's time to go out into the frozen tundra that used to be your front yard, just toss on a pair of Henderson's Parker pants with nothing more than briefs, boxers, or panties underneath. You're ready to shovel that driveway or make snow angels, keeping toasty warm all the while. Even if it's warm where you live, but you work in a freezing cold office... Parker Pants are perfect! That's because unlike your typical ski jacket, Parker Pants feature stylish outer material ranging from combed cotton and linen to silk and polyester blends so you can mix and match to go with your sport coats, suit jackets, or blouse originally designed for Admiral Perry Sir Edmund Hillary and tenzig Norgay, Henderson's parka pants are just what you need when you're looking to put some heat in your seat that's Henderson's makers of fine pants since 1909 and now back to Sakatash
1: thank you Bill Haywat all right right after rich we will have our dip into the tweet sack our Cavalcade of gratitude and one last burst of Dust but for now Here's Rich, and me. All right, Rich Scheidner, in Mill Valley, California. (laughs) (laughs) A triumphant evening at the Throck.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And so it is.
1: Well, Rich, it's good to see you, man. You too, Mark. Thank you, man. Absolutely. Uh, It was my pleasure to read and review your, uh, your book, Kicking through the ashes, your memoir. Uh, it seemed like maybe it's a volume one of a memoir, since it uh, sort of just covers
2: a span of time up until about nineteen ninety or something. Uh, early nineties when I when I did it. Uh, no, that's it. That's it. I'm that's done. it. That's all you got. I, I really wanted to not just make it a memoir, but cover the whole history of the eighties. Yeah, yeah, Lay down what led up to it. The seventies, then that explosion that was the comedy boom that we all know about. Sure. And then um, and then the end of it. And so my my career kind of dovetailed with it really nicely. So yeah. I just thought when I first kind of quit or started to stop doing stand-up in 94, 95 would be a good place to end it. And that right. was sort of like the end of the boom. That was like, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah.
1: which uh, we can talk about this a little later, but sure. uh, we, I've got my theory of one of the reasons why the boom, or a big reason why the boom bottomed out, but you may have a different, uh, different sure, take sure. on sure it. Sure, sure, what is it? What's your about. take? My take is that, um, the sort of the A-list club comics were all being scooped up by television. Seinfeld, Roseanne, Paul Reiser, all these people, right? And uh, so they were kind of out of the club game for the most part, right? They are doing their TV shows. And so everybody who was on that level below them bumped up to the clubs. They were headlining, which was fine. They were all very qualified to. They're all getting the Tonight Show slots and everything yeah. else. Uh, but then I think Hollywood realized that regular tv writers couldn't really write for comics and so people like Seinfeld were scooping people like Bob Nickman up and all these guys that were comedians taking so they were moving out of the clubs and so the next rank of club comics bumped up to headliners so people were going out and they were seeing guys doing you know seven minutes on a tonight show and they go hey that's a great set and they'd go to the club and this guy couldn't carry an hour
2: Well, that that was from the beginning. That happened in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. That was always a factor. Oh, I know it was always a factor, but at this point there were no alternatives. I I, I think, I mean, I hear what you're saying, and maybe that's definitely a factor, but I think it was also a victim of its own success. It became, it over-proliferated, and the novelty wore off. Yeah. So when you had five comedy clubs in Atlanta, four comedy clubs in Cleveland, when you had a numerous amount of comedy clubs in one area, then, of course, there was a watering down. Right. And then it's like, how many... White male stand-ups are you going to see? <laughs> yeah. And where they, they're, they're, the the divergence what they're talking about is not that big. Right,
1: and no. and the incident of seeing comedy on TV began to increase. Yes. So it's and, like, well, why do I have to go and out? And that
2: and that became part of the the, the 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 trap too, because you'd see comics on TV, whether it was the HBO half hour, hour, or Tonight Show shot, Letterman shot, where they do like their greatest hits. Yes. So it's like bam, 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 and so the audiences started becoming accustomed to that being what comedy was. So right. they come into a club and they expect the comedy to go bam, 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 bam. And comedy's like, no, I want to play blah. No, 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 do the bam, 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 bam. Right. And it became like an expectation. And Right, so I attendance starts to fall off, so they start papering the room. Well, that happened, of course. But that happened, again, because the mystique was off, the novelty was off. Everybody had seen it a bunch. And then again, there were more and more comics doing these more and more clubs. And it was a watering down of talent. There's naturally had to be because it expanded so fast. Right. It's so like any other bubble. It expands fast. like it was a, the tech boom in the 90s. There were so many different firms doing so much sure. stuff. Well, they all couldn't be Microsoft. They all couldn't be Apple. They yeah. all couldn't be, you know, uh, it's, 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 there was bad ones in there. There were yeah. bad ones. Yeah, And yeah, there yeah. were bad comics when you had went from 400 comics to all of a sudden thousands of comics. Right, right. I loved,
1: Overton had a line, he would say, uh, when he'd go in, the room was packed, and you go, oh, this is great, and then you find out, it's half of it is people that got, you know, papered into the room, he goes, oh, it's all full of passholes.
2: <laughs> well, you know, you learn that when we not started, and it was like, um, like Chicago Funny Firm and, and Lana mm-hmm. Ostrovich and some other places, and they start doing it because they get, they, they go, look, we need, at least can sell drinks to them. Right. Right, so... When that happened, you started realizing how important a cover charge was to the audience's attention span. Mm. When they got 15 bucks into the game, they pay attention. When they got no money in the game, oh, yeah. I'll talk to you, I'll watch the comic. All of a sudden, you became like a TV on the wall. Yeah, yeah.
1: Very much so. Yeah.
2: Um, so, you, uh, for people that
1: have not read your book or may not be familiar with you, um, you start doing... Uh, comedy in what year was it? Seventy seven. Seventy seven. Seventy
2: seven. Yeah, January seventy seven, January fifteenth. Wow, I know the date. Most comics do. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's
1: that's good. Yeah. Particularly
2: given your history
1: that that date is <laughs> so, 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 somehow in well, there. What also
2: helps that the guy who took me, Howard Vine, also mm. remember. So it also helps that, that somebody who wasn't as drunk for as long as I was. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, and you talk about you know your starting days in the in well you talk about all your days in the book, which is what's so great about it. And um, uh, I thought one of the things, and I mentioned this in the review, which I'll link in in uh, the website for, the sh- for this episode. Um, but I thought what was great about the book was it's this sort of non-linear trip through this time period. Uh, I described it as sort of a time machine that somebody's broken the controls on. And that you're taking people on this ride that goes back and forth based on subject as opposed to based on time right right? so you'll talk about the new york scene and you'll mention all these comics in, in new york and the clubs and blah 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 and then you'll talk about some stuff that you've done and then all of a sudden we find ourselves in boston and meeting all these boston comics right and what that scene was like and then some of your adventures with some of those boston comics so it's this it's it's kind of this wild ride that in a way not that you could ever pull this off in a book i don't think but in a way sort of emulates this almost timeless quality that decade had, you know, where you're sort of moving around and some days you wake up and not sure where you are. I remember when I was running the club and when I was running the comedy underground in Seattle, Larry Miller was up there uh, one week and he calls like the phone rings and I had a room in the comedy condo. So the the comedy condo in Seattle was actually a decent place because I lived there. Right. So I had I had a girl come in at the beginning of the week when the comics would leave and clean it up.
2: Actually, someone actually cleaned. Yeah. Not, not like the girlfriend of the manager no, 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 who no, come no. in, we change a roll of toilet paper, yeah. and leave. No, we had a housekeeper. Uh, you had, had actually clean. because yeah, I lived there. Okay. But, so, Larry isn't there. It's like Friday
1: night. No Larry. Well, he'll show up. He's an adult. Phone rings Saturday morning. Mark, this is Larry. Larry, where are you calling from your room? No. I woke up this morning, and I'm on a deck... On the shore of a lake, I think. <laughs> and I'm not sure where I am. I noticed.
2: <laughs> I noticed feeling very... But I think I can get back to the club in time for the show tonight. Oh, my God, man. <laughs> I noticed. I noticed that so many times, you know, so many times. Yeah. I mean, the end of that story, you know, I told tonight about... The the Beaumont, Texas. Yes. Where I I started drinking and I woke up in a trailer outside of town. Now, Beaumont's not a big town, so I'm in a trailer park. In a trailer with the bartender, who I didn't even remember was the bartender. She had to tell me who she was. And then she's like, I got to get to the airport. She goes, well, I don't have my car. My boyfriend's got my car. My boyfriend's got my now. I'm in her trailer. Her boyfriend's got a car. And she goes, I'll call my Ex-boyfriend to come get you to take you to. It was the longest ride to the airport I ever had. This guy is just seething, seething oh as he takes you. Yeah, you're you're banging her nail. I ain't banging her no more. What the hell is going on? I gotta drive
1: you to the airport. You know. I mentioned Bob Nickman. This is a story from uh, when I was running the club in Seattle, and Denny Johnston was a headliner. And Nickman's flying in, and Denny goes, "I'll go out to the airport and pick him up because Denny had gotten in early." I go, "Okay." So Denny's wearing like a satin baseball jacket. <laughs> I am wearing for some, for once, whatever. I'm wearing a, this Panama hat, and I had like a full beard. And we pick up Nickman. And he gets off, He gets off the plane, and this is the days when you could go out to the gate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's got his luggage, which is a literally a wire coat hanger with another T-shirt on. <laughs> that it's is. Creepy. That's his wardrobe. For the <laughs> week. and we're going out to the car. Which at the time we could park at the curb. We didn't have to park. Yeah, the yeah, route. of course. And these three guys in suits come trotting out of the airport, waving badges, going, "Hold up, guys, hold up." They're the DEA, and they've been tr- they've been follow they've been flying back and forth between L.A. and Seattle, trying to figure out where the coke is coming from, and they've pegged Nickman <laughs> as a mule. Yeah, because he's got no luggage. (laughs) And so we spend 15 minutes with them doing bits, Nickman and Denny, to prove that they're comedians. That's
2: hilarious. Working the club. That's hilarious. And they just, they waved us off. But it was just like, just crazy time. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was a whole different era, a whole different era. I remember remember watching, I mean, I got walked on a plane, I was so messed up, the club guy walked me onto the plane in Alaska, buckled me in, (laughs) <laughs> and then put like a big vial of Coke in my pocket and said, this ought to get you back to L.A., brother. Oh, my God. Because like, you know, I remember walking uh, Mike McDonald, a comedian from Canada, right? We are in Atlanta. we have been up for days, up for days, drinking and don't go. And he had to fly back. And he was like so paranoid. He's like, I- I'm not going to go because they're, they're watching me. They're going to, FBI's going to get me. You know, I mean, it was like, you know, yeah. we're comics in, in Atlanta, Georgia. So we drive <laughs> in the airport. There was a, a, another waitress and... and 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 Pam still remember Pam? Sure. She was like dating Mike at the time. Okay. So yeah. we drive out there, and, and I get to, we're at the curb. And Mike goes, "No, I'm not going out." I said, Mike will walk in. Literally walked him in. He he'd go like, "See that baby stroller over there? See that baby? That baby's wired. You know that baby's wired." He was so we, we were like tweaking our brains out. So I walk him onto the plane. I don't have a ticket. We're not flying. I just tell the flight attendant I, he needs help, and yeah. I gotta help him. And he was like, 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 it was like Ray Charles. He was just, like, frozen. He goes to the lady, I yeah. said, I'm going to help him. She was, like, oh, can okay, help him? And I walk him onto the plane, buckle him up, and say, Mike, you're okay, man. You make it. Call me when you get the Canada. Oh, oh they're going watch me right now. They're going to watch me. I said, you got to. And I just left him. I mean, walk, I mean, when will you do that now? Those
1: walk are, him onto the plane those are, with no ticket. I think all of that sort of thing is parts of the formula that made that time that time. You know, I mean, I, I remember leaving the club, leaving the, the underground some nights, and we would be driven to another club that was still open by cops, and we had fucking booze in glasses was, in the backseat of a car. It's park. like I
2: said, the night it was a, it was before Mothers yeah. Against Drunk Driving, which happened like mid '80s. Yeah, and these clubs when they started popping up everywhere in '80. They didn't care. They, they were like, I would do two-hour shows. They'd be like, fantastic. Because they didn't close the no. tabs. They just kept selling them more yeah, and more yeah. booze. Yeah. And they'd send them out drunk in the nights like, hey, go out, go out. you know, yeah. like We're closing <laughs> up now. People yeah. were falling into cars and falling out of the passenger seats. Oh, seat. it was crazy. Yeah, yeah, it was a totally different time. Um, so I don't want to kind of give away too much of, of
1: stories of the book because there's, I mean, there's so many great stories in the book. Uh, but what was the process of trying to can you talk about a little bit about this in the forward but what was the process of trying to
2: recover your memories of some of this stuff I mean there was so uh, uh, so much that went wrong I, I, I had notebooks joke notebooks with stuff written in the margins and my handwriting was so bad I probably lost a lot of stuff just by the fact I couldn't read my handwriting Yeah, right. especially back then I was probably drinking and drugged up and just writing stuff down so I had little things I had uh um for whatever reason, I, all, these stuff that, all these things were sent to my mom. Oh. I would send her like clippings from stuff to try to show, look, like I have a real job. Oh, you know, yeah. so reviews and stuff like that from different places that my yeah. mom kept. She gave me this box of stuff, oh, and I had in there. I don't know why. I guess I dumped off with her before I went to L.A. When I was living in New York, all this kind of stuff that was like joke books and notebooks, and there were and there were um, uh, my my check stubs. You know, those check yeah. things you used to have. And so I had like notations in there. Like I was actually, you know, like I can, okay, I said, $100 for Coke. You know, or, or this story or this guy would come back to my mind. So a lot of stuff was prompted by that. A lot of stuff I've been telling these stories for years. Like that Ollie Joe Prater story yeah. I told tonight. I told that story for years. That's one reason why I wrote the book. Because I hear these stories come back and go, that's not the way it went. I was there. Yeah. So, then I still, and I still forgot some. Like I just put the book out. And sometimes we're really duplicate stories. You go, how many stories are you going to put up this type in there? You know, So right. you just pick the best and put it in. I had a story about uh, in the book about getting in a fistfight on stage. It was in Lansing, Michigan. Mm-hmm. So I see Marty McGiven, and I've got the book out, and she goes, did you put the story in there about the guy coming after you with a knife in Austin on stage? I go, I forgot that story. I for- I can't believe I forgot that story. She goes, yeah, you didn't put that in there. I said, no, it's too late. The book's there." She goes, oh, you should have... Because a guy came at me with a knife when I was on stage. And I'm sure part of me was like, probably going, nobody will ever believe this, but Marty was there, and I'm, you know, so, you know, it's just, some stories didn't get in. I got forgotten. Yeah, I mean, it's just the
1: stories of of running a club. I remember one night, uh, Kirkenbauer was on stage in Seattle, and there was a heckler. And Kirkenbauer and hecklers were the worst mix ever. Oh, he didn't like them, or he didn't didn't like any kind of... just hated them, and... He literally ran across two cocktail tables from the stage to get to this guy. (laughs) (laughs) It was hilarious and just frightening. It was just crazy. Uh, So yeah, the stories are legion.
2: See, I I like sometimes, I I didn't always look at hecklers as antagonistic all the time. I think sometimes it was just checking out to see if you were there in the moment. Mm Mm-hmm. And I like playing with them, and it's sometimes added a lot to the show, so I would play. But if they're antagonistic, of course, that's another thing.
1: Yeah, usually when they start to get... Pretty hammered. It yeah, well, drunk,
2: yeah, after a while, you just go, look, I, 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 you know, you don't understand what they're saying. Yeah. They're incoherent. No, you got nothing. You, you can't do anything for that. Yeah. At the,
1: at the underground, you know, we had Swanee's, the sports yeah, bar yeah, upstairs, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, And
2: it's still there. They move slightly.
1: But uh, there used to be all these jocks that would hang up upstairs, you know, that were friends of Swanee's and whatnot. And so if I got someone who got out, out of hand, I would just go upstairs and I'd say, hey, can you come down? And they would just... I remember one night, this guy, Alex, came down, and I forget who was on stage, but there was a guy just wouldn't shut up. He's yelling. And Alex pulls up a chair and sits behind him and puts his hand on the back of the guy's neck, and he just leans forward and goes, you enjoying the show? And the guy just... <laughs> just, you not know, a word out of him the rest of the time. Man. That's great. Um, so you, you put this uh, these tales together, and because, at least in my... My writing style, this happened. So I'm curious, as you're sort of piecing these things together, are memories beginning to come back? Yeah, yeah. Right? Because you're beginning yeah. to kind of create... One thing
2: would lead to another. Right, right, And sometimes people would... There were witnesses to them, and they would fill in details I forgot. I yeah. had that a lot, where people would... On a Facebook, I would post them on Facebook. And in the comments, people I was there, I was the MC for this one or that. You know, <laughs> okay. and this, you remember this? That was yeah, the guy's name. Cool. Like, I don't remember the guy's name. Because was, so I had that, people would add on to things. And people prompt, and then, of course, just myself, just going through them, and they go, oh, here's another one, I remember this one and that one. And I wanted to cover, of course, the history of the 80s, but every aspect of stand-up yeah. that I could think of. So there's a story about joke thievery. There's a story, you know, so the, everything I think of, and, of course, a lot of the names back then, so I'd have a chapter to Robin Williams or a chapter to Jay Leno, or, yeah. to, you know, with Leno at that period when he was the top, Club comic, or or a chapter to Bill Hicks or Sam Kennison, who are my friends, and so I had chapters about these comics, what they meant to that period, or my interaction stories. Of course, you know, so I tried to cover all that. You know. Yeah, Andy Kaufman, a story about Kaufman, you know, or whatever.
1: Um, and you, you before the book came out, you you began putting these stories up on Facebook because I remember reading them there. Yeah. When you put them up, was it the idea that this will
2: become a book? or No, did you
1: start reeling. No, these stories no, I was
2: off? kind of dead in the water. And uh, sort of my spiritual mentor in sobriety, I uh, said, what did you used to do? He didn't know what I used to do. I said, I used to do stand-up comedy. He said, you do it anymore? No, nah, nobody will hire me. He said, well, go do it for free. Then you start doing it for free when you first started doing it? Yeah, that was 1977. I was 24 years old. He said, yeah, yeah, go do it again for free. This was 2011. Okay. I said, all right. I started doing it for free, and I started getting paid gigs like we talked about yeah. and the same thing already Do you, did you, what else you used to, I used to write for TV don't really hire me for TV anymore well you still like to write well yeah but never read my stuff He said put, them on, put things on Facebook people like to read that stuff so I started putting the stories up there and I got encouragement people would love them and say yeah. you know. so I started I never had an intention of it being a book until people started saying hey this is a book here and I thought well I don't want it to be just my memoir I need to cover a history of 80s yeah. so I started really doing the research of that calling up all the club owners, calling up all the other comics oh, who had okay. memories. I did a lot of anecdotal research and cross-reference, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like what comics were there on the Boston scene or what comics were there the San Francisco scene or the, or the Houston scene from the other comics who were there. Sure. And, you know, the L.A. and New York scenes. And, and it's just started getting a lot of anecdotal stuff and from club owners and when certain clubs opened. Yeah. You know, so I get the history of the, of the lineage of all the clubs because the first three paying comedy clubs opened up in Southern California. In 76, 77, and 78. Right the, right. the comedy store in reverse was Pacific Beach. That's right. Then it moved to La Jolla down in the San Diego area. Yeah. 76, 77 was a laugh stop in, in uh, uh, Newport Beach. Yeah. And then Comedy Magic Club in 78, which is still open, at Hermosa Beach. Yeah. And then the first cop club, on the paying club on the East Coast was Garvin's in Washington, D.C. in 1979. And then all these clubs started popping up. Right. Philly and Detroit and Cleveland, and Chicago, and all these places, Chicago you know, all these clubs that were paying outside talent to come in. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, the punch so line. I just tried to
2: get the lineage of it, the punchline in 82 in in Atlanta. And then San Francisco, in San Francisco 79. 79, but yeah. it started paying comedy, comedy from out of town to come in, I think, in 80. That's right. So I just had to get all that from the people who were there. Yeah, yeah. Very I cool. just tried to do the best I could in the research. Yeah. So when you
1: decided to kind of, get back into doing stand-up. I, we had Jordan Brady on the show Yeah. Uh, when uh, I Am comic came out. That's right. How did your involvement with that come about?
2: Well, you know, I had this book called I Killed that I, a compilation of the stories with Mark Schiff and I put together yeah, yeah. back in 2005. So Jordan saw that and said, I, yeah, I like that a lot, that book. I read that book. And let's do it. I want to do a documentary about stand-up comedy. So well, I don't want it to be just Rowdy Stories of the Road, which are great, we can get some of those, but I wanted to talk to comics about what it's like to do comedy, what it's like to hear the laughter, what it means to us, those sort of things, and the psychology of the comic, the, the soul of the comic. Mm-hmm. And we started doing it, and Jordan, being a smart director, realized he needed more than that. Mm-hmm. And he saw me one night just kind of looking at some comedy, and I hadn't been around comedy for a while. Yeah. So I'm not going to comedy clubs, I quit doing it, basically, around yeah. By 97, 98, 98, somewhere in there, I'd quit doing it.
1: So you just you were trying at the time, you were just kind of helping him put this. Yeah, so again. he said, I'll interview
2: the comics and I'll write questions and stuff and Jordan will direct it and this other guy uh, um, would would produce it, you know. And right. and um, so uh, one night we were at the UCB and I was watching some comics and, and Jordan just saw this look of lust on my face, I guess, or and he said, you want to go out and do it again? I said, I, know, I really like wonder would like to do it again, but I don't know if I can. He said, do it, do it you know and and it became part of the story, right. Ryan, you're part of the thing, and that's how it happened. It was really just jordan's idea and and it was hard to come back, and especially on camera in front of everybody yeah. you know it's it very hard, yeah rough
1: yeah. And, yeah i mean when when that when that process of getting through that movie ended, how did you feel about that experience of getting back? Well, I was mixed
2: state? I had oh, mixed feelings you know sometimes i I felt like you know. Looked like an idiot up there, you know? I, I, I never could look Look, in my best, when I was at my height and physical prowess as a performer, I never liked watching myself. Yeah. So now here I am, you know, 50-some years old, coming back after not doing it for a long time. I looked terrible to me, <laughs> and I was embarrassed. And uh-huh. and But Jordan was like, Oh, no, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. You know, it's like, yeah, you say it's good, because... It's a train wreck, you know people only watch a train wreck. That's how I felt. I'm just telling you it was oh no, but I understand I, but, I understand but but, but 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 also part of me was like thanking him, going, I need to do this again because i didn't realize I didn't realize until then how much I got out of it. yeah I didn't realize how much mental health I got out of it,
1: and I think that I, I think that comes through in that movie quite frankly I, I know because, it does you're right, yeah, because um I mean, I certainly remember watching you in your heyday. And kind of seeing that vitality come back in your face oh my God. and your being, you, you know,
2: since that now coming back, I lost like forty pounds. I mean, there's so much that you know, off every antidepressant, everything. Not, I don't take any really? medication at all, and all that stuff was like coming back to performing. And you know, we comics always talk about how oh, you know we give to the audience. We what we do is like like doctoring, you know, like medically helping the audience when they laugh as much. But we a lot of times don't own up to how much we get out oh, of it. Oh, it's an energy transfer. It's huge. It's huge. Yeah, it's, it's, not, huge. Yeah. it's magical it's for me. It's cyclical. For me.
1: Yeah, it's you're like, right. You know, you're right. The more you do it, the more you take in. That's right. The more right. you put out. You're right. Um, so yeah, it was, It was. to me it was fun to watch your um, transition through that period of, of being nervous about getting on stage and then um, going out and doing more clubs and stuff. So it's really interesting to watch that process. Um and did you see his follow-up, the I Am Road comic? Yeah,
2: yeah, Wayne Fetterman,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah Wayne was just a guest on uh, yeah. Sunday. Wayne's uh, on great, he's great. Yeah, absolutely, very um, funny guy. Yeah. And
2: he knows a lot about the history yeah. of stand-up, too. You know? Yeah, he's very great. much he's so. Yes.
1: Um, when, you, when you came back and were doing stand-up, um, did it sort of... Um, have a muscle memory attachment to it from when, you, <laughs> from when you did it
2: back in the day? Yeah, there was... It didn't take, you know, another three years to get good enough to be comfortable. comfortable or feel like I was doing it again. Yeah. But there was... I can't equate it to riding a bicycle. I can't at all. There was a real uh, uh, being out of shape. I was very, very out of shape. Well, the audience sensibilities changed. Yeah, yeah. Right? and And, of course, you know... Your style of comedy is locked into an era, so I go in front of young comics. Even if I was t- talking about things that were current and new, my style—they go—he's an older comic. It's an older style. Mm-hmm. It's like when I when I was young, and you hear these guys come in from the 50s or whatever, Shelley burn Yeah, and yeah. you go, that's an older style. You know, we'd work with these guys, London Lee or whatever. You could feel it. You know, you could just, you if, if you just if you just heard the comic, you know, through, through or you read the you know if you heard the comic, you would just get it. That's an older comic. Right. And so there was that, but I had to be honest about it, so the more I started being honest about it, I mean, I came up with lines, I came up with an opening line, I go on stage in a suit, right? And there's a younger crowd, and they go, wear a suit on stage because I believe I'm at the age or I need to leave the house looking coffin ready. And it'd kill them. <laughs> they, they go, so, and it's a classic one-on-one comedy. Yeah. Like, own it before they think
1: it. Yeah. Like, yeah.
2: I know I'm old and you're young, and I'm going to say it right off the bat. I'm old and you're young, and as soon as you tell that truth... And you do it yourself, don't wait for somebody you know, old man. Right. You know, you beat them to it and you 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 take the moment, you take then you take the truth and you take the audience. Yeah. What
1: is your sort of deconstructionist look at comedy today? Like you say, that each sort of era has its own style, that sort of well, thing. Well it's getting
2: it's gotten, it's gotten uh, I call it confessional comedy. Mm-hmm. I started calling it that a while ago. Because it's gotten more and more like Lenny Bruce and more than more soul started that talking very personally, you know, very personally. Sure. Like when he first hear Lenny, there's all those early pieces where there's bits that comics would do back then, shelling and all those guys would do, Long Hunks of Newhart. The, here's a bit, you know, Father Flotsky in The Prison Break. Right. You know, this eight-bit, the Palladium, 19 minutes of, the, of Frank Dell, the failed comic, you know, trying yes. to get a gig that he had no business taking. Yeah. Right? Those were like long set pieces. But then Lenny started talking about his life and relationships are more personal and and that's when the the whole thing broke where comics what they said became tied to them personally yes you know and now comics today it's very confessional very confessional so you say your darkest secrets in a more and the more you talk in a casual conversation it's even more conversational than my era Mm. like in my era you can hear me doing bits and pieces right but today the trick is to to like, like Mark Maron's like a master at it, at it you know, or Bill Burr. Yes. Where they're talking, it's like, the guy could be sitting in an airplane talking to you. Right. You know, next seat. I mean, it's very conversational. The more conversational it is, the more natural it is, the better it sounds to today's audience. And, and then I, confessional. Say the deepest, darkest things things that are happening with you, you know. Not, not even beyond shocking the audience, you know? Right. But there is a shock value thing because... People are constantly trying to find the edge, you know, get to the edge. Yeah, you know, where and can I, think you shop?
1: I think that's what lends the medium of podcasting to people like Burr and Marin and Greg Proops, where you're talking about these in this confessional manner, and people have earbuds in, and they're, it's a one-on-one, one-way that conversation.
2: Was at, you know, it's like Howard Stern figured that out years ago when he was doing radio, right? Mm-hmm. That most people listening to him were alone in their cars or at home getting ready to go to work. So he would he could say things that, that if there were three people there, you couldn't laugh because you'd go, oh, my God, I don't want to laugh at that. It looked like I'm laughing at a cripple. Right. Because right. he's doing a cripple joke. Right.
3: right But at home
2: alone, you go, that's funny, right? So you don't worry about anybody else listening. And I think you're exactly right. I think the podcasts are an extension of that. You know? Yeah, I was uh, I reviewed
1: an uh, episode of Greg Fitzsimmons' podcast. We had David Feldman on.
2: Yeah, very good.
1: The day before his divorce decree came down, and it was the bitterest, funniest shit I've ever heard. And I, I, was, I was, it was morning, I was running, I had headphones on, and I'd go, I'm glad I'm listening to this thing in headphones. I couldn't listen. I mean, it was just misogynistic at times <laughs> and just bitter and angry. And it's like, I'd be embarrassed to I, hear this in front of another person. You
2: see, here's the whole thing. That is so, it's so different now today. I can't imagine if somebody interviewed me the day after, I've been divorced twice. So the day after either one of my divorces, to interview me at that point, that's like you go, well, I didn't even do divorce jokes until I molded them over for a while, worked them out a little bit, to go on stage a little time later. But now today, everything's so immediate. Yep. It's immediate. Right? Yeah, Dana Gould was here at the Throckmorton the week his divorce
1: came down. And he goes, yeah, I got some divorce stuff. I'm gonna... And, and half of his set was just this unbaked, just... Emotion,
2: yeah, about it, yeah. And divorce is not funny. It's hard to make it funny. Yeah. You know, you. It's like the like the perfect example is like Married with Children that television show. Yeah, they didn't get along. They're married though, so as long as you're in the relationship, you can say the most heinous things to each other, fight like crazy, but you're still married, so it's funny. But then they try to do a show. The same guys who created Married with Children tried to do a show afterwards where the couple was divorced and still yeah. living together. Yes, right, happily, unha- unhappily, ever after. Yeah.
1: Didn't, didn't work, work at all, because right.
2: it's like, once you divorce, it's not funny anymore. Now,
1: of course, the, the the classic comedy club network has long ago collapsed. There's sort of this, I mean, right now, like, the open mic scene in any given city is sort of crazy. It's like every comic has figured out, I can't get stage time, so I'm going to convince this bar owner or laundromat or bookstore or whatever right. to let me do an open mic.
2: Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah, it's like an infestation though. Yeah. And then the comics come and take over and they don't spend any money right. and they're just open mic guys. So you've, you've got more comics than available audience members. So it's comics performing for comics, which is the worst possible audience. So growth is difficult. Yeah. But what you have today is more guys who never intend to quit their, their and I say guys, men and women, sure. who never intend to quit their day job. Right. Remember there used to be a hackle? Yeah, don't quit your day job. Yeah, right. But these guys never intend to quit. They got great careers. This is a, a hobby. Yeah, I call, been, I've called them hobby comics. For you've years. never seen this many hobbyists ever. It was not possible when I was starting out. It yeah. was not possible. Guys who were dedicated, totally dedicated, couldn't make a living at first. So there was nobody doing it as a hobby because the comics wouldn't allow them to come in. They go, "You're wasting time. You're not going to get stage time unless you are hanging out every night in a comedy club, like say in New York City." Catch a Rising yeah. Star, Comic Strip, Improv. Those were the clubs when I first got there in 79. You had to be hanging out there every night all the time to get any stage time. Yeah. So nobody's coming in as a hobby. is going, hey, just checking it out. I to do it. Get out of here. But there was a,
1: there was a slim uh, population of comedians that had had figured out a way to work the system. There were guys that worked for airlines, for instance, that were like either flight attendants or pursers or whatever. And they, had, they could fly for free. So they would call a club in Seattle. Now, you're
2: talking about later in the boom now. Uh,
1: in the boom, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But they would call up and go, uh, hey, do you have a middle slot? And they go, yeah, we don't fly middles in. I can take care of that.
2: So they all would right, fly right. to get a middle well, they, slot. They,
1: but there was a guy, and you might remember who he is. He was, a, he was an emergency room doctor. And he would go...
2: Dr. Do, Bill Miller.
1: Yes, he would go do gigs and work the emergency room. He's
2: still doing comedy out in Chicago, where he's an anesthesiologist. Okay. And yeah, absolutely doing it. But he was smart never you know we talked this before he goes you know like I'm working out of zaney's right for like like 1980 money I'm grateful they even get any kind of yeah. job at all but it's literally beginning of the boom money yeah thirty you know six years 37 years right, later right. and he's going I mean he's the middle act right now he goes I think I made a mistake I really think I should have stayed. I, I go Dr. bill I've been in your big house you got a huge money you own partnership in a medical corporation you you got you're you're fine three kids you've raised and put them through college you know no 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 they have no debt yeah they come out i said you made the right choice i was funnier than you and i'm broke (laughs) all right yeah you made the right choice but
1: that's that so that hobby comic thing which was a um almost like a aberration during the boom, it was just a way for somebody to work the system, like
2: as you're talking about now. It's it's sort of the way things. There's are. a lot of them. There are a lot of them. Yeah. Now, now again, like you said, what they do is they go. I mean, I've seen this happen. There was a there was Bob Romano, who who's a guy who's an actor, and he was on yeah. R- Ridge Mount High, played the young guy who was the the guy who was uh, t- selling ticket scalping and all that. You know, yeah. he opened up a coffee shop in North Hollywood, and then he said, well, you know, some comic community said, hey, can we do like. Open mic on a Friday night. He said, Yeah. Well, he'd have like, it's a small shop, right? He'd have 20, 30 comics hanging out. Nobody's buying anything. Right. So he can't sell it to regular customers, and these guys are clogging it up and running a, a, an open mic all night for themselves, hanging out on the sidewalk, pack the place. Yeah. He's making no money on a Friday night. <laughs> so it's, it's totally self defeating. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, how do you think comedy is going to evolve from this point? I mean, A, let's look at. The the new political climate, which is going to change things, I think,
2: in various ways. I, I think it's this been this for a while. You can't you can't be even a Mertzall. You certainly can't be a Will Rogers where you can work both sides of the hall. Right. You choose which side you're going to be on. If you're a conservative comic, Dennis Miller or whatever, you do conservative comedy, and that's that. Right. If you're a liberal comic, Bill Maher, or whatever, that's what you do. And those people come gravitate to you. But you can't go into a comedy club unknown and do jokes about. Both sides, right. because the liberals will boo you when you do the the yeah, jokes yeah. about them, and the conservatives will boo you when you do the jokes about them, and nobody'll forgive you when you do jokes about the other people, yeah, so you have to pick a side, and i that, that's the that's the my thing on the political side, but I think comedy's bigger than ever. there are more comics now drawing more people, like bigger venues, theaters there are more theater comics you know to me theater true. comics right yeah. now. Dozens and dozens of comics so you can go fill theaters. And the comedy clubs. When these comedy clubs opened back in the eighties, early eighties, the Cleveland Comedy Club was like hundred and twenty five seats. I think Atlantic punchline was two fifty. A big comedy club would be three, three fifty. Sure. Big one. The the Phoenix Improv, right? The one in Tempe. Tempe, yeah. Right. That was like they could put 450 in there. That that's was right. a complete anomaly. That was a freakish comedy club. Right. It was an old movie theater that Mark went into. Yeah, But it was a freakish comedy club by size and all. That's not even close to... A, that's a small room now. Right. All the They even call them improv theaters now. 700-seat rooms in Atlanta, Houston, yeah. Miami, Nashville. All these comedy clubs are big rooms. Yeah. So I have a comedy community who can fill the room on a weekend. Right? And that comic will walk away with $35,000, $40,000 for the weekend. Yeah. And they take the, the, middle, the middle act. He'll, he'll have a middle act, right? That middle act will be the headliner on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Sunday. Right, and then they've got big curtains that close off. Right, right, exactly. And every headliner who can't draw gets paid 250 a set, $250 a set, which is less money than oh. they were paying when things first started in 1980. Yeah, yeah. So if you can't draw... You're just a comic, you're like a, just a, you're, it's a bucket of worms. They just pull a worm out and put it on the hook that weekend. But if you can draw, you make huge, it's just like real life. There's no middle class anymore. Yeah. Comedy perfectly reflects hmm. real life. There's no middle class in America, really. Yeah. And there's no middle class in comedy. you either a huge star drawing, big money. Or you're a bucket of worms. That's a bucket of worms, man. <laughs> 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 and you're talking to a worm. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Rich, thanks so much for talking to us. Ah, Great man, to, uh, I loved it, Mark. Thank you, man. Talk to you. And, uh, Anytime, I, I man. will encourage people to, uh, to get out there, go online, uh, buy Kicking Through the Ashes by Rich Scheidner. There'll be a link up to um, Amazon, wherever you want me to link to, uh, and people can buy your book directly. They can go through uh, our Amazon uh, banner at the top of our homepage and buy it, and then we get a kickback. From that. So that's I like, like that. That's the way to do Go it. Go there. Go do that. Absolutely.
2: Everybody make a little change. All right. Rich Schreider, thanks again. Thank you,
1: Mark. Be sure to check out Rich's book, Kicking Through the Ashes. You can get to it directly from that banner, that Amazon banner at the top of our site. And uh, just uh, put in Rich's name, which is R-I-T-C-H-S-H-Y-D-E-R, or The title, Kicking Through the Ashes. It's a wild ride, even for someone like me that was right there in that world, knowing all those comedians he was talking about in the book back in the 80s and early 90s. All right, let's see what might be in the tweet sack after all this time. (laughs) Ha ha, Tweety. Been a while, buddy. Speaking of kicking through the ashes, you can see Three Still Standing, the documentary featuring our own Will Durst, Johnny Steele, and Larry Bubbles Brown, who were coming up as comedians in the San Francisco comedy scene during the very same comedy boom period that Rich covers in his book. It's currently available on Amazon Prime. Use the Amazon banner again to get there. And you'll even get to see me in that story, talking a little bit about the SF comedy world and in some footage with Larry and Dana Carvey as we took a road trip to do some gigs a few years ago. Coming up this week on splitsider.com in This Week in Comedy Podcasts, I review two shows, a new soundcast called Good One, a podcast about jokes, hosted by Jesse David Fox with guest Jim Gaffigan. Jesse was the one who first drafted me into writing soundcast reviews five years ago when he was an editor over at Splitsider. I will have him on as a guest on this show a couple of episodes from now. So what goes around comes around, you see. The second show is a political gab fest called the more perfect union. I'll be talking about that. I'll also be reviewing something for Huffington post entertainment this week, but I'm not sure what that or those shows are going to be. The final Royal and Doodle soundcast episode is dropping soon. Tommy Royal and Angus Doodle are a couple of funny guys from Great Britain who were fairly prolific when Succotash started, but they've been off on their own separate things for a while. And although they haven't dropped an episode for a bit, the boys figured they wanted to have a big finale. So I just recorded a little bit for that. And the show should be out soon. You can learn more about them and hear past episodes on their home site, royalanddoodle.com. And doodle is spelled D O O D A L L Royal That's really about it. Pretty empty tweet sack this week. It's been pretty bare bones, so if you'd like to drop us a line at Mark M A R C at Succotas Show.com or tweet us at Succotash Show. We'll scrape whatever you give us up and drop it into the sack. For next time, which brings us to the cavalcade of gratitude, where I thank you for mentioning Succotash in your tweets, retweets, follows, likes, hearts, thumbs up, or whatever. If you mentioned us, we'll do our best to mention you. And here we go. Doom Thugs, Ed Wallach, Hunter Block, Davian Dent, Jeffrey Welchman, Podcast Booster Bot, Dave in the Cave, Thunder Taco Soundcast, Phil Larness, Queen Street, Dale Seaver, Mad Wanderer Podcast, The Michael Brown, God, Jenny Carroll, Illusionoid, Podosphere, Ryan Smithy, Goldhar, Changes in Latitude, Paco Romaine, Auto Radio, Ed Pro, PGH, RPM, Floyd R. Billet. Dr. Octopus with a five for the S at the end, Monster Party, J Love Groove, The All Seeing Guys, Podcast Whore, Lily Holloman, L.A. Breakfast Club, Lord Ant-Man, The Slant, Bitch Podcast, Podcast Booster Bot, oh I already said them, (laughs) well they get two mentions, what the heck, Gary Loper, and the San Francisco Improv Festival. Kind of short list this time, Finally, whew, people are not mentioning SugaTash as much, which is probably a good thing. It keeps us off Trump's radar. Speaking of Trump's radar, let's get to our second Oh, durst Go!
3: Hey guys, Will Durst here with a few choice words on the Donald Trump cabinet of deplorables. Very, very rich deplorables. Depending on whether you believe Bloomberg or the Wall Street Journal, Trump's cabinet picks are worth between 8 and $16 billion. These are the people who are going to drain the swamp? Sounds more like they're subdividing it. His EPA director sued the agency 13 times. The Secretary of Education never went to public school or sent any of her five kids to public school, ever. The CEO of World Wrestling is in charge of the Small Business Administration. Want a loan? Okay. First, got to prove you can go five minutes without being thrown into the turnbuckle. Secretary of Labor is the CEO of a fast food chain that was prosecuted for stealing from their employees. The ambassador to the United Nations is from South Carolina, where the term foreign relations means doing it with anybody who's not your first cousin. In Alabama, the restrictions aren't so severe. Which is where the Attorney General is from. Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III, who was turned down for a federal judgeship for being too racist. But Attorney General of the United States? No problem. Trump appointed his daughter and son-in-law to key positions, along with his two elder sons, Uday and Kuse. The new HUD secretary, Ben Carson, thinks the pyramids were built as grain silos. The new secretary of energy wanted to get rid of the agency, but couldn't remember its name. And the secretary of defense is a guy whose nickname is Mad Dog. Let me repeat that. The secretary of defense is a guy nicknamed Mad Dog. What could go wrong? For Succotash, the comedy soundcast, soundcast, I'm Will Durst. Mad dog!
1: Uh, That's going to do it for Epi 147 of this here soundcast, soundcast called Succotash. I want to thank Rich Scheidner for the chat. I want to thank you for listening. If you're a comedy soundcaster, by the way, and want to make sure we get around to playing a clip from your show, don't wait around for me or our associate producer, Tyson Sainer, to find you. Just clip yourself. You can upload a three to five minute MP3 or wave clip to me at this link. Hightail.com slash you slash suck attach. That's also up on the blog site um, in the piece for this episode. You'll f- just hunt around. You'll find uh, the link, upload your clip directly to us and boom, it goes into the next clip show. Probably if I remember to do it. Okay. And the more you tell us about your show, by the way, in your cover note, the more I can blab about you when we do feature the clip, get it, got it. Goodbye.
0: You've been listening to Suckatash, the comedy soundcast, soundcast, with your host, Mark Hershon. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants and... Imagine your company's name right here. Find us on the web at SuckatashShow.com, on iTunes, on Stitcher Smart Radio, on SoundCloud, and on Ha Ha Ha, the laughable app. You can also hear us streaming and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Suckatash Show. Email us at marc at Or call into the Suckatash Hotline at our non-toll free call number, 818-921-7212. That number again is 818
1: 921
0: You can also upload clips from your favorite comedy soundcasts directly to us using our direct upload link at Hightail com slash, slash Suckatash. is produced and engineered with the kind assistance of Joe Paulino through the auspices of Studio P. Sausalito, home of the hit. Our associate producer is Tyson Saner. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is <laughs> Kenny Turges. Until next time, I am your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please pass the Suckatash. Goodbye.